Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Geronimo Pratt, 27 years to freedom. It's been a challenge every day, every day. And like we said, it, it keeps you on your toes. <laughs> Elmer Geronimo Pratt, free on bail, looking back over his long, difficult journey through the justice system. Producer Myra Ming takes us back now to the summer of 72 and the day Pratt was convicted. Judgment day for Elmer Pratt. The verdict is guilty. Mr. Pratt throughout his process of his innocence. The day was nothing different. He plans to go on with the fight. He was very, very disappointed in the uh, verdicts, and he chose not to be present at the remainder of the reading of those verdicts. Reporters are surprised that it wasn't a mistrial. Do you think there was anything improper in the judge allowing the jury to go on deliberating after they twice said they'd been deadlocked? Well, of course, from the defense standpoint, we would have uh, preferred. Uh, a hung jury be declared at that point. After 10 days sequestered, a couple of jurors stop to talk to reporters as they leave the hotel. And I think that there were 12 people there that wanted to find that man not guilty. And they would have done anything. We went over the evidence excruciatingly. With no physical evidence linking Pratt to the murder, the jury convicted him largely on the testimony of one man who claimed Pratt had confessed to him, Julius Butler. Julius Butler was a very eloquent, uh, well-spoken man and um, carried some credibility. Juror Jeannie Hamilton remembers some of Butler's credibility came from being a former sheriff's deputy. Then known as Julio, he had resigned from the department, opened a beauty shop down the street from a Panther office, and joined the party. But somewhere along the line, Butler's allegiance came under suspicion, and he's now accused of having been an informant. I don't know what Giulio had done to become an informant, but they may have had a case on him. He may have bought his freedom by this. Julius Butler has always denied being a police informant and has consistently refused to talk to Fox News. At Pratt's first trial, Butler testified, quote, I have never been in the world a snitch. Then, in the summer of 1996, Fox 11 News obtained documents from the district attorney's own internal files, index cards identifying Julius Julio Butler as a confidential informant. Now, imagine all this evidence that we, should, we would have had, that the jurors would have had. Boy, they took us, didn't they? If I would have known what I know now, he never would have been convicted. On the day of Pratt's release from prison, Butler resigned from the board of L.A.'s prominent First AME Church and released a statement saying, I don't want to cause any further harm or pain to my church family. No bitterness toward Julius Butler? Mm -mm, no way. Anything you'd want to say to him? Well, I wish him well and hope that uh, he uh, will come to himself and uh, speak the truth about how he worked with these people with COINTELPRO to do not only <clears throat> these, the, the, uh, the, the, the Olsen thing, but so many other things that affected so many other lives. Elmer Geronimo Pratt, 27 years to freedom, will return in a moment. Context of white supremacy. 
Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, April 8, 2021. So I have been told this is our sixth study session on Jack Olson, suspected racist, uh, his autobiography, or excuse me, biography of Geronimo Pratt, Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo G. Jaga Pratt. Uh, we have made some pretty good progress. Uh, we're about a quarter of the way uh, into the book, maybe even a little bit further along than that. Uh, the audio segment that you heard at the beginning, uh, that is from a KTLA, uh, which is a Los Angeles uh, television network. Uh, they did a number of documentary series on Geronimo Pratt over the years. Uh, they did a uh, pretty nice one. You heard a segment from the one that they did after he was released, uh, but they also did some pretty nice segments while he was still in greater confinement uh, to help keep attention uh, on the case and, and point out how uh, galling uh, this wrongful conviction was. Uh, but lots of great information. We'll hear about some of that today as we get to uh, the verdict, uh, which led to that uh, shameful, uh, disgraceful conviction. We just had uh, Dr. Gerald Horn on the program uh, just a couple of days ago this week, uh, and we talked about his book, The Bitter Sweet Science, which talks about racism, white supremacy, uh, white gangsterism, uh, and its control of professional boxing. The man not delectable Negro, uh, homoeroticism, and white male sexual gratification uh, exploitation of black males that will resurface in this book wow and that already we already had one dose of that if people remember he talks about the incident uh, I think it was about two weeks ago where uh, when he was first placed in greater confinement and they threw him in a cell with a bunch of other inmates one of them he said was named train wreck and he was trying to rape sodomize another black inmate with a broomstick and he said he ended up getting into uh, some sort of uh, physical uh, violent confrontation uh, with train wreck think he said he beat him up pretty good uh, but so we've already had that uh, in this book it will continue this week last man standing the tragedy there's a lot of tragedy this week the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Context of white supremacy. This is audio segment one. Chapter 23. Verdict. The Pratt jury began deliberations at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, July 17, 1972, the 34th day since the trial had begun. As the last juror exited, Cochran closed his briefcase with a confident snap. I like this jury, he told Geronimo in a soft voice. I like the way they paid attention. I think they'll be fair. He stuck to his practice of refusing to predict victory even when the facts seemed to favor his client. It was easier to predict frog races than jury decisions. He was concerned about the Polaroid evidence, but he kept it to himself. Twenty-six hours later, the jury foreman 
sent a message to the judge asking for a rereading of the Charles Pratt testimony. It's that damn picture again, Hollipeter said. I wish we'd never entered it. We made a big mistake, Cochran admitted. It's a hole in our case, and Kalustian ran a truck through it. When Hollipeter complained about the prosecutor's tactics, Cochran interrupted. I'm no Dick Kalustian fan, he said, but the guy did his job. That's what the adversary system is all about. I'd do the same to him. The jury also asked to hear a reading of the complete testimony of Julius Butler, a process that took the rest of Tuesday and half of Wednesday and left the court reporter hoarse. The defense attorneys concluded that the jurors doubted Butler and wanted to confirm their doubts or believed him and wanted to confirm their beliefs or most likely that they were split. On Monday, July 24, the sixth day of deliberations, jury foreman Dennis Romo reported that the jurors were making no progress. The judge asked him where they stood. Ten to two, the foreman answered. She asked if he thought there was a possibility of reaching a verdict. Well, Your Honor, that would be a speculation on my part, but I would have a tendency to feel that it would be more in the nature of a possibility than a probability. The other jurors seemed to agree. Cochran wondered if Judge Parker would be receptive to a motion for a mistrial. Despite a few glitches toward the end, he felt confident, but he was beginning to have second thoughts. He was footing the trial expenses himself and receiving minimal wages as a court appointee, but his practice was flourishing and the potential cost of a new trial was of no concern. If we try this case again, he said to himself, we'll do a few things differently. We won't introduce the Polaroid picture. We'll make Barbara Mary Reed justify her multiple descriptions. We'll zero in on Kenneth Olson's identification of another man and let the jury evaluate his double talk. We'll win for sure. At a bench conference, he said, Your Honor, this jury is in a hopeless deadlock. The judge refused to declare a mistrial. After three more days of deliberations, the count stood at 11 to 1, and at 10.30 on the morning of the next day, July 28, 1972, Foreman Romo sent word that a verdict had been reached. He handed several sheets of paper to the bailiff who passed them to the judge. She perused them carefully, then handed them to the clerk who stood up and began to read. We the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Elmer G. Pratt, guilty of murder in the first degree. Geronimo yelled, Guilty? and jumped up. 
As the clerk read on, he glared at the jurors and said, You're wrong. I didn't kill that woman. You racist dogs. I'm not going to sit here and listen to the rest of this. He turned toward the judge. Your Honor, he said, his voice cracking, can I be excused? She said, Mr. Pratt, we have to conform with your Honor, he interrupted. I am not going to sit here and listen to that. Me being framed for something I didn't do. Now, Parker tried to talk, but his outcry continued. May I be excused, please? You have your rights of appeal, the judge said calmly. In the jury box, 22-year-old Jeannie Hamilton, one of the last holdouts, studied Pratt as she listened to his anguished words. My God, she said to herself, have we made a terrible mistake? After the final formalities, the judge thanked the jurors for being very attentive and most conscientious. You do have the satisfaction of knowing that you have made a significant contribution to the administration of justice. Richard Kalustian told a reporter from the Los Angeles Times that he was elated and called the verdict definitely in keeping with the evidence in the case. Foreman Romo, stung by Pratt's courtroom outburst, painted a picture of a jury that had bent over backward for the defendant. There were twelve people there that wanted to find that man not guilty and they would have done anything. We went over the evidence excruciatingly. He scribbled an impromptu press release and passed it to reporters. After hearing the verdict, Mr. Pratt called us a racist jury. He will never know how difficult it was for each of us to render this decision. The evidence and the law left us no alternative. I honestly feel that this jury did its utmost to find him not guilty. Were I to stand in Mr. Pratt's place, I would want this jury for myself. Juror Juan Santiago confirmed that Cochran had been correct about the negative effect of the absence of name-brand Panthers like Bobby Seale and David Hilliard. If more members came in and established his alibi in Oakland, that would have counted and maybe turned it around. Juror Jesse Woods agreed. I wondered why more people didn't come down from Oakland and testify that Pratt was there if he was there. Had the Panther leaders backed their colleague's story, Woods said he might have voted not guilty. An upset Jean Hamilton told reporters that she was convinced that an appearance by Seal or Hilliard would have caused a hung jury or an acquittal. She'd originally been impressed by Julio Butler. He seemed elegant, well-spoken, fairly credible as an ex-deputy, but she said she would have discounted his testimony if the defense had proved that he was an informer. She'd been most impressed by the defendant himself.
Not only had his story rung true, she said, but he seemed miscast in the role of mad dog killer. Weighted against Pratt's decency and charisma, she said, Butler's unsupported testimony wouldn't have supported a guilty vote. Nor had Hamilton been impressed by the vacillating stories of Barbara Mary Reed and Kenneth Olson even after one of the jurors stared hard at her outside the jury room and asked, If someone shot your husband, wouldn't you remember his face? Hamilton said she agreed with fellow jurors that the testimony about the Polaroid picture suggested that the Pratts and other alibi witnesses might have lied about other matters. As a strong pro-innocence juror, she'd been devastated by the photo. The whole case came down to that Polaroid. I still thought he was innocent, but the people on the other side kept hammering away at me to explain the picture. Explain the picture. They kept taking me aside privately and trying to convince me. Finally, I caved in. In later years, the holdout juror would express her attitude in fewer words. They really took us, she said, didn't they? It wasn't a question. Johnny Cochran worked late, combining the trial record for appeal points, but every few minutes he squeezed his eyes shut and asked himself where he and Hollipeter had gone wrong. He considered himself an upbeat person, but this, this was rock bottom. He thought of the way Pratt had taken his arm after court and said, it's okay, Johnny. It's okay. As though Cochran had been found guilty and required comforting. On his way to the holding cell to await transport to jail, Geronimo had called back. You did your job, Johnny. You did all you could do. Nobody could have won this thing. In a way, Cochran wished Pratt had lost control and cussed him out. They'd been through so much together, they were bonded now, and brothers shouldn't have to suppress their feelings. He reflected on their long talks about race. The debate always came down to Martin Luther King's principles of nonviolence versus the fiery precepts of Malcolm X. Cochran was an outspoken supporter of nonviolence, thoroughly believed in the American system of justice, and held that Courageous people working within the system can arouse the popular conscience against injustice, as he wrote later. But his friend Geronimo had been annealed in other fires. Vietnam, the LAPD cruelties, the murders of his friends, the militant teachings of Malcolm and other hard-edged black leaders. Cochran thought, there's a middle ground between Malcolm and Dr. King, a golden mean. If Geronimo and I had talked things out, we probably would have ended up agreeing. Not that it made much difference at the moment. 
no amount of Aristotelian philosophizing could alter the fact that a proud young attorney named Johnny L. Cochran had gone into court as an advocate for a good and decent and innocent man and lost. He reflected on pretrial proceedings on Richard Kalustian's flat denial that he was withholding discovery material. He thought of his old classmate's claim in final argument that the glaring contradictions in eyewitness testimony were insignificant. All that mattered, the prosecutor had insisted, was that Barbara Reed and Kenneth Olson had looked out over the courtroom and identified Pratt. Cochran thought of recurrent hints that the FBI had orchestrated the case, that police had put pressure on witnesses and might have suborned perjury, that key witnesses twisted information and lied. If we could have proved those points conclusively, he said to himself, I wouldn't be sitting in my office at midnight drawing up appeal points. As it was, it had taken the jurors ten days to reach a verdict. He resolved never to trust the system again or repeat his mistakes. I would have to be tougher and more skeptical and, most of all, braver in the pursuit of truth, he wrote later. That's what the loss of the Geronimo Pratt case taught me, a healthier kind of paranoia. He'd been taught valuable lessons, but his client would pay the tuition. Pratt lay on his side on the floor of his cell, not even trying to sleep, losing body warmth to the heat sink effect of the damp concrete. He'd given up on his bunk, the cold metal scraped his skin. He took off his shirt and wrung out a few more drops of water. A guard had emptied a glass over his head while leading him back to the hole in chains. His thoughts drifted to across the tracks to the sound of tugboats chugging up bayou both to pecan trees, alligator gars, Spanish moss, and Eunice Petty Pratt. The attorneys said he had a good chance to go free on appeal, but what if they lost again? How would he tell his mother? He remembered the night she'd sat up eulogizing his father the last time he'd seen her. He remembered her pride in everything her youngest child had done. My little baby, a soldier. What pride could she take in him now? Brother Timothy said she'd been busily phoning her children, quoting James 5:16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and ordering them to pray her son out of prison the way they prayed him out of the army. Geronimo wished he believed, if not in prayer, then in something. He made a solemn vow that his mother would never see him behind bars. Chapter 24 A Glimmer of Light 
two days after the verdict was delivered, Cochran answered a phone call from Lawrence Rivets, a lawyer in the Santa Monica branch of the Office of the Public Defender. I've been following the trial in the newspaper, he told Cochran. Kenneth Olson lied under oath. I thought so, Counselor, Cochran said amiably. But how can I prove it? Soon he was reading a sworn declaration from the public defender. On December 24, 1969, at approximately 10 a.m., I appeared at a lineup as attorney for Mr. Ronald Perkins, also known as Eugene or Ernest Perkins, who was suspected of being the gunman in the shooting of Mr. Olson and his wife. Officer Eckstein related to me prior to the lineup that Mr. Olson picked Mr. Perkins and another man named Vance as the men who shot him and his wife after Mr. Olson viewed approximately 500 mug shots over a year's period. Sergeant Eckstein informed me that these were the only ones he had picked as of December 24, 1969. During the lineup, Mr. Olson sat in the fourth row, middle seat. I sat directly behind him in row five. After each suspect stepped forward and made statements as ordered by Sergeant Eckstein, the statements being, turn off the lights and lie on the ground, Mr. Olson filled out a form which he positively picked number four as one of the gunmen. Mr. Olson stated at the time, the voice did it, a quote which I wrote down at the time he stated it. Cochran remembered how Olson and Eckstein had danced around the subject of the mistaken identification. He thumbed through the trial transcript a hefty four inches thick and found Olson's testimony about the live show-up on page 145. Answer. Well, I identified the person at the lineup that I had seen in the pictures as such, and I told Detective Eckstein that while there was a possibility, I didn't feel I could really make an identification of that person because I didn't feel, really, it was the person. Then he checked Eckstein's testimony on the same subject. Question. It is true, is it not, that at one point Mr. Olson picked the pictures of two of the suspects out, didn't he? Answer. They looked like two of the men that could be the attackers. Question. Mr. Olson picked one of those men out? Answer. He picked a man out that he had seen a picture of, and he said he thought he could be involved, but he wasn't that positive. Oh, but he was, Lawrence Rivens assured Cochran. Kenneth Olson had been dead certain. Cochran phoned Santa Monica Police Headquarters to make another request for the lineup photos that Eckstein, while on the witness stand, had promised to deliver. 
a dispatcher reported that the detective was unavailable and Cochran sent his own investigator to follow up in person. The agent reported from Santa Monica that the photos were missing from the police files. So was the signed lineup card. A month after the verdict, Cochran was back in court with a motion for a new trial. He cited the Rivets affidavit. He charged that the judge had erred in allowing frequent references to the Butler insurance letter and he argued that there had been tampering during the jury's sequestration in a downtown hotel. In open court, Kalustian assured Judge Parker that there was no question that her ruling was correct. Cochran was still pleading with the judge when all at once she waved her hand and said, the motion for new trial is denied. She sentenced Pratt to life imprisonment and strode toward her chambers. Into the new lifer's prison file went a permanent warning that he was a vicious killer and must never be released. The statement would follow him like a faithful black dog the rest of his days behind bars. It was signed Richard Kalustian. Chapter 25 Q In November 1972, a little over a year after the George Jackson massacre at San Quentin State Prison, Geronimo Pratt was delivered to the bloody war zone in handcuffs and shackles. The usual enmity between guards and inmates had metastasized into an open violence as a result of the Jackson affair and other prison uprisings. At the institution known to its residents as Q, fewer than 400 guards oversaw 4,000 prisoners. The outmanned guards maintained control by pitting one racial group against another. San Quentin ran on racism and hate. The new inmate expected to be put through the normal intake procedures, dental and medical checkup, x-rays, a psychiatric interview, counseling sessions, but instead a phalanx of guards prodded him through one security door after another. He was assigned his own cell in the euphemistically named Adjustment Center known to convicts as the hole or the bucket. The steel door slammed and he found himself alone in the light from a dim overhead bulb. When his eyes adjusted he discerned four walls and a hole in the floor. It was the L.A. County Jail all over again except that the toilet hole was a little bigger. He was nervous about his old medical problems. He was already bleeding. Early on his first night he heard someone call, Hey man, you know who was in your cell before you? Dead pigs. He was told that the bodies from the Jackson massacre had been stacked where he was now expected to sleep. 
he was sure he could smell blood but there was no sink TV or radio he couldn't wash or read meals arrived through a slot in the door four slices of bread a day and a cut-off Purex bottle containing a few inches of water. Every few days he was fed a regular meal, typical prison slop, barely warm, as he described it later. The young convict, who'd been raised on fried catfish, shrimp, smothered chicken, and Bowden spat out his first bite. The trustee who delivered his food said the guards had sprinkled his mashed potatoes with a powdered medicine used to treat asthmatics. Why? Geronimo asked. I don't have asthma. The trustee whispered through the slot, Weren't you tight with George Jackson? Never laid eyes on him. They say you were engaged to George's sister. They say you were waiting outside Q when he blew out the walls. Pratt wondered what else was in his dossier and how it got there. He asked a counselor why he was being held in solitary confinement. You ran the Black Panthers, didn't you, son? The man informed him. We can't put a heavy dude like you with other inmates. You'd cause too many problems. Johnny Cochran began his first visit with misgivings. He knew from experience that meetings with solitary confinement prisoners at San Quentin were iffy propositions. You began with a long wait in the reception area. Then a sergeant might advise you to come back another day. Sorry, visiting hours are over. Your client's locked down. There must be a misunderstanding. You were at the mercy of overworked, underpaid, martinets in crew cuts. This time there was a surprisingly short wait before he was led to a small interview room. He felt as though he were entering a mausoleum. Through a heavy gauge wire grate, he watched Pratt approach in shackles. He wore a white jumpsuit with a big black X on the back. Cochran asked the escorting guard, What's the X for? Helps us aim. He listened as the guard warned Pratt that he would be shot if he made one false move. You trip and fall down, the guard said. I'll shoot you. That's my orders. As Cochran took a seat in the metal chair, he thought, What have we wrought? He was already offering daily prayers for Geronimo. He would have to offer more. We'd like an extended visit, Cochran told his escort. I'm here from L.A. The guard told him to knock on the wall when they were finished. Cochran looked at his watch. It was a little before 10 a.m. After a warm exchange of greetings, Geronimo asked him to check his prison files. 
I hear they got a lot of stuff about me and George Jackson. I never laid eyes on George Jackson. Cochran said he tried to check the jackets of other clients in the past and it was usually a waste of time. The California Department of Corrections was like the FBI. It gave out what it wanted. He promised to try again. By two o'clock, four hours into the visit, lawyer and client had exhausted the subject of future legal stratagems and were chatting about their mothers. They agreed that Hattie B. Cochran and Eunice Petty Pratt had more in common than their Louisiana roots. Cochran was reciting Lincoln's line, All that I am or ever hope to be I owe to my angel mother, when Geronimo warned that he didn't want his mother to visit San Quentin. He said that he added other family members to his visiting list, but he would be grateful if Cochran would discourage them from making the long trip from Los Angeles. I understand, the lawyer said. By 3 p.m., Cochran needed a bathroom break. He knocked on the wall and there was no response. Every five or ten minutes, he knocked louder. By 3.45, he began to feel claustrophobic, then angry. He realized that the guards were giving him a sample taste of the hole. At 5 p.m., a guard answered his knock and said, You asked for an extended visit, didn't you? He seemed to find humor in the situation. Geronimo told his lawyer, Promise you won't forget me? I promise. Two weeks later, Cochran made the 800-mile round trip again. This time, he waited four hours in the reception area. He slid a paper under the crack at the bottom of the grate in the interview room and told his client, Read this. It's a permanent part of your jacket. The document was on the letterhead of the Los Angeles DA's office and appeared to be an advisory to the CDC. Pratt read, When Bunchy Carter was killed, Pratt assumed the leadership of the Black Panther Party. As such, he was constantly in possession of bombs, dynamite, automatic weapons, and handguns. He was the instigator of an assault on Ollie Taylor who was suspected of being a member of a rival gang. Pratt looked up from his reading. I was acquitted on Ollie Taylor, he said. Who wrote this? Calustian? Who else? Cochran said. Geronimo read another line and stopped. He says that Julio said I was responsible for the death of Franco Diggs in 1968. I wasn't even in L.A. when Captain Franco was killed. That's something else that happened when I was up in Oakland. We always figured Julio did it for the cops. He read more, then said, Here's some more bullshit from Julio. 
Pratt also was involved in the shootout in 1969. You remember how I was involved, Cochran? I was a mile away asleep. He read on, Julio Butler testified that during the Ollie Taylor incident, while Pratt was pointing a gun at him and Ollie Taylor, Pratt had an erection. Information reveals at least one other similar occurrence wherein violence appears to generate sexual excitement. Geronimo lowered his head. This is sick, he said slowly. How can I correct it? Cochran said, you can't. After you're convicted of murder, you're fair game. The DA can say any damned thing he wants. What about my rights? Rights? As far as Dick Kalustian is concerned, you have the same rights as a dog in a kennel. He paused. Read the rest. Geronimo read. Some of the jurors actually believed that Pratt set out on a mission the night of the murder with a specific intention to kill. There is no underestimating the danger defendant poses to others. He is cold-blooded and vicious. He is capable of killing for no reason at all. At the present time, he is a member of the Eldridge Cleaver faction of BPP, which is violence-prone. He is entirely capable of attempting to escape from prison. Information reveals that in the past he has threatened David Hilliard with death. Pratt should never be paroled. Despite any hollow words, if released, he will undoubtedly attempt to kill those he believes put him in prison. Cochran said, I've heard some other stuff the DA's office is putting out about you. I'll try to track it down. What other stuff? Geronimo asked. You led a breakout attempt. You stabbed a guard with a pencil. That was another dude. Are they giving me every crime ever committed? Take a look, Cochran. Does it say I shot the Kennedys? They say you'll kill any guard you can reach. They say you and your relatives lied under oath. You went on crime sprees in Louisiana. You come from a crime family. You're inherently evil. You're blah, blah, blah. Cochran paused, then added, if they wanted to get you killed in prison, they couldn't have done a better job. What else is in my jacket? Geronimo asked. I might as well hear it all. There's a mental evaluation. I can't tell if it's by a psychiatrist or psychologist. I never talked to any shrinks. They haven't done my diagnostics. This guy starts off repeating Kalustian's statement 
in his own words says it's his own professional and medical conclusion then he adds some propaganda like what you're a military trained assassin you're a 24-hour escape risk you'll try to incite riots and take over the prison for the safety of the institution you have to be kept in the hole Geronimo asked is Calustian behind that too I wish it was that simple I think somebody's reached the Department of Corrections maybe it's the FBI the door opened and a guard ordered Cochran out I thought we had an hour the lawyer said another guard appeared behind Pratt and motioned him to his feet I'll be back the lawyer said he watched as the black X faded into the shadows walking past the reception desk Cochran said this was an attorney client visit why'd you cut us off you violated my clients rights the guard ushered him out after the interview Pratt spent one of his worst nights for weeks he eaten a haphazardly starchy diet that provided almost no roughage and his intestines felt petrified I had to squat to go and it hurt like a son of a bitch I asked to see a doctor and they laughed for hours after his lawyer left he writhed and twisted over the hole in the floor but all he could pass was blood chapter 26 fourth street in Sacramento for three months Pratt's condition worsened late one night he fainted when he came to he was lying on the floor in chains and a medical technician was jabbing at his arm give me a vein man the medic muttered god damn it wake up rivlets of blood ran down both arms the tech tried again and missed the vein Geronimo slipped back into unconsciousness when he awoke guards were dragging him down a corridor on his back they lifted his 170 pounds onto a gurney and rolled him to the prison hospital in the blue glow of a treatment room he saw that both his arms were wrapped in bloody bandages a doctor appeared and said turn him over other med techs and doctors had long since abandoned examining Pratt rectally they knew it meant a brawl as Geronimo faded in and out of consciousness he saw the doctor pull on a translucent glove and squeeze a lubricant from a large tube onto his fingertip when Pratt jerked at his chains the doctor asked what's with you son you trying to die Geronimo felt something pierce his upper arm and blacked out again when he revived he was on his hands and knees it was nighttime he looked up and a drop of water hit his face 
through slants of ring, he saw guards patrolling a gun walk with rifles. He realized he was in the prison yard. Four guards stuffed him into a squirrel cage reserved for out-of-control prisoners and trundled it to a sally port where he was handcuffed and shackled and deposited in the back of a squad car a guard on either side and another in the front passenger seat. The driver steered out the gates and turned onto busy Highway 101. As they sped through the rain, Geronimo saw that he was in a three-vehicle caravan, an armored van led, and another followed. Three hours later, the car lurched onto the shoulder. Through the steamed-up windows, he saw his first grass in three years. A guard pulled a blindfold over his eyes, and the driver resumed at a slower speed, sometimes stopping and starting as though negotiating city traffic. At last, Pratt was ordered out. He had no idea how far he'd been duck-walked between two handlers before the blindfold was yanked off. He blinked in harsh light and saw that he was in a large cage with four guards and two men in civilian clothes. His restraints were removed and he was ordered to take off his clothes and bend over. I don't do that, he said. He braced himself as the guards moved in. One said, spread your ass. I got shell fragments, man. I said, bend over. You'll have to kill me first. One of the civilians waved the guards off. Geronimo was handed a set of prison clothes and steered out the door. Along the way, he saw a sign. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. He recognized Dante's words from his studies with Bunchy Carter. Still chained, he was led down a long corridor with cells on both sides. Can you tell me where we are? he asked. 4A, a guard said. 4A? Folsom? Cell block 4A was known in the underworld as 4th Street in Sacramento, the worst hole in the California prison system. My God, he said to himself, they got me down as the baddest ass criminal on earth. You're in the bucket, tough guy, another guard said. Let's see how many revolutions you can start here. He heard a chirpy voice cry, Geronimo! Charles Manson's hairy face peeked from cell number one. Pratt nodded. He was glad to see a familiar face even though it was ugly and scarred with a Nazi swastika. They'd been in the hole together at Los Angeles County Jail. Manson's outcry set off other yells and shrieks. Hey, they got Geronimo in here. It's the man. Homeboy. A chant began, Geronimo, 
Geronimo! Geronimo! He could still hear the sounds when he reached the end of the long tier. He wondered if he should feel honored. The guards steered him through a set of sealed doors. The noises faded. At last he found himself behind heavy bars and chicken wire in a soundproof cell, the last circle of hell for uncontrollable inmates. It was the most solitary of solitary confinements, its nearest equivalent, the infamous Soul Breaker in Oakland. He raised his arms and touched both walls. He didn't see a spigot or a sink, but his eyes caught a dull gleam in the back. He wondered if he was dreaming. There was no seat and no paper, but it was a toilet. What a break, he said to himself. My luck must be changing. A week later, he moved to the security cell block to another tumultuous welcome. Via shouted introductions, he met his neighbors. One-legged Joe Morgan, the Mexican mafia guy, was there. They made a movie about him. I met Bulldog Lad, the co-founder of the Aryan Brotherhood. Next to him was Kenny Como, a little bitty escape artist, the human fly. Then came Bobby Butler, the other co-founder of the Aryan Brotherhood. Next to him was Death Row Jeff, a guy with a voice like a foghorn. Hey, where you at, Geronimo? Jeff was convicted of stealing a car in 1947, but they kept him inside for shooting a homosexual prisoner with a zip gun. At the near end, there was Chili Red, a street guy out of Oakland, and, of course, Manson. He was allowed an hour of exercise a day in a mini yard whose concrete walls were chipped with bullet scars. Now and then he found himself sharing a mop or a scrub brush with another member of the Folsom Demimond, but most of the time the 4A inmates were kept apart, communicating only by shouts and kite bootleg letters passed by guards or another prisoner. At first he had to deflect the jealousy of some of the older blacks. Guys like Chili Red, Jake Lewis, Death Row Jeff, all these old heavyweights had been inside since the 50s. Some of them killed in prison. That's why they were in solitary. They were mumbling about me. All those big old studs they were waiting to inherit the George Jackson legacy as the meanest prisoner in the CDC. It mattered to them. They were saying, who is this asshole? Who is this fool going to take over from George? Dude just got here. I put out the word. Hey, I lost my wife. My daddy died. The Panthers are a mess, and I'm doing life. Man, I'm not trying to take over nothing. I said, spread the word. People best just leave me alone. All I want to do 
is hit the law books and work on my case. He had a harder time convincing the guards of his harmlessness. In the wake of the riots at Attica and everywhere else, every action and reaction by prison staffers was rooted in paranoia, especially toward convicts who wore troublemaker tags. At first, Geronimo didn't know how to handle the problem. The hatred for militant blacks just fell on my shoulders and I was too green to know why they were punishing me. Unlike the other residents of 4A, he was denied radio, TV, and reading matter. He remembered something that the African-American novelist Richard Wright had written. Reading kept me alive. Eunice Pratt had always taught her children that books were as necessary as food. Now Geronimo understood. Another negative evaluation quickly followed him from San Quentin. Mr. Pratt is a source of intrigue, a counselor wrote, continues to cause disruptive activities from behind the scenes, has capability, and is willing to act against staff when and if staff gets careless needs maximum custodial controls to prevent subject gaining any advantage over his custodial supervisors. It is within the realm of possibility that subject can obtain outside assistance and gain his ends. Geronimo didn't understand. In the time period covered by the evaluation, he'd had almost no contact with other inmates he felt helpless against such official slander. Somewhere he'd read that innocent victims eventually feel responsible for their own suffering. He wrote to his brother Jack, I feel depressed, oppressed, and suppressed. All his life he'd fought against moodiness by taking action, fighting back. Now there was nothing to fight except steel. The high-spiritedness that had made him lead his jailed Panthers against the L.A. County jail guards had died the day he was declared a murderer by a jury of his peers. He spent hours reliving the awful moment in the courtroom, head in hands. He slept fitfully some nights, not at all. He dreamed of being overrun by Victor Charlie. He saw himself running naked through a minefield holding loops of his own intestines. One night he watched an old woman's hair and brains burn like a Roman candle. His dreams became so violent that he was afraid he would hurt himself in his sleep. I dreamed I was doing a blast out of a C-141. When I woke up, my head hit the ceiling so hard you could hear it at the end of the cell block. I ripped that bunk off the wall and tore it up. Wasn't much they could do about it. I was already in the hole. Whenever he was moved, he was shackled, handcuffed, and escorted by guards with axe handles, the weapon of choice 
among 4A personnel. Word went out that he had led the Panthers' gun battles against the LAPD and killed three officers himself as well as members of rival black organizations. He was described as founder of the Black Guerrilla Family, the most violent organization within the walls. They built me up big, a captain in the Green Berets, munitions expert, armament specialist, a genius with weapons, said I could make a zip gun out of 21 pieces of paper, knew how to make poison darts and fire them from a blowgun made from a magazine page, said I could blow out a wall with ordinary kitchen supplies, said I'd already saw through two of my bars and my old Black Panther friends were going to break me out. Under the strict rules on 4A, a guard could write you up for looking at him sideways, but they were lazy about doing the paperwork. In the yard, you weren't allowed to talk to other inmates, but everybody got around it. I was the exception. They wrote me up for breathing. Refused to shave. Wouldn't stand for count. Torn t-shirt. Throwing apple on floor. Picking up a piece of paper. Talking. Guards tried to goad me into fights. Kept saying I'd been tight with George Jackson. There was a permanent war between the Mexicans and the blacks and I ended up in the crossfire. Inmates were getting shot and stabbed every other day. I was hit with a plastic bullet in the yard. It was crazy. It was madness. Some guys lost their minds. Didn't even know they were in prison. You'd see them doing the Thorazine shuffle. Had to be propped up to eat. One day, inmate B4 0319 found himself talking to a convict who represented everything the black elders of Morgan City and every Pratt on earth including Geronimo would have despised if they encountered him outside the prison walls. From the mustached mouth of Wayne Bulldog Lad gushed a septicemia of race hatred and violence. The co-founder of the black-hating Aryan Brotherhood had been assigned to the hole for stabbing a fellow worshiper to death in the chapel. A meticulously neat man, he was built like Geronimo's stubby father. An inmate passed word that Lad had said, That guy Pratt, he's a man first and a black second. In the yard, Geronimo called out, Hey, Bulldog, quit talking me up. You're killing me with the homies. Pratt and Lad talked till the guard in the gun tower ordered them to separate. After that, the white racist and the panther leader became friends. When Lad learned that Pratt was spending three or four hours a night straining over his cold metal toilet, he offered some medical advice. Avoid the prison quacks, he said. Those fucking pills will kill you quicker than a deer rifle. I figured that out, Geronimo said. 
first thing you got to do is increase the flow of blood to the area. Don't jerk off. That'll redirect the flow where you need it. Quit smoking. Lay off stimulants. Coffee. Tea. Coke. All that shit. Eat leaves. No meat. Just leaves. Leaves and more fucking leaves. With help from the trustees who ran the food carts, Geronimo went on the bulldog diet and lost 20 pounds in six months. He began fasting three days a month and told Lad, fasting is healthy for black prisoners. Helps you to think clear through to the bottom of things. Every black man should try it. Haven't you noticed? The Aryan Brotherhood leader responded. I'm not black. Yeah? Well, don't give up hope. Almost caused two errors there. Got it together. I was having all kinds of little small technical hiccups. Anywho, context of white supremacy. Last man standing. Uh, we are rolling right on through uh, Mr. Jack Olson's text. Uh, before we get to notes from people who wrote in or what have you, correction, I say it regularly, strive for accuracy, the documentary that I mentioned at the beginning, which people should check out. It's available uh, on YouTube on Geronimo Pratt. Uh, it is uh, put out by KTTV, which is Fox in Southern California, not KTLA, strive for accuracy. Uh, and the footnote <coughs> When Mr. Pratt, it's recommended that uh, he eat lots of leaves, no meat, just eat the the leaves. Bulldog is telling him the footnote uh, leaves is prison jargon for vegetables. Vegan plant based diet. Mm. Anyway, uh, and and I was so disgraced. I couldn't believe it. Did you hear? In that documentary where Mr. Pratt, he was speaking, this is after he's been released. I don't know if you would have sounded the same in greater confinement, but 27 years wrongfully in prison, many of those years in greater confinement, as we've heard, suffering, suffering mightily. And they asked him, so how do you feel about Julio Butler? And they're waiting for the soundbite, like, oh, you talk about coon of the century and no count this and no count that. Mr. Pratt said, I don't have any spite for him. I don't have any ill will for him. I wish he would uh, confess and honestly testify about his involvement in this case and others. But yeah, I don't, I don't wish him any will. (laughs) Jesus walks amongst us. Forgive the metaphor, but I mean, are you serious? Who is going to do 27 years in prison? No spite. No, I mean, even if it's just for the camera, like, are you serious? Geronimo Gijaga Pratt. That is somebody. (laughs) Salute. Um, Let me get uh, one of the folks who wrote in and then we'll get callers. uh, Untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. One of our investors, he wrote in uh, verdict number one, Cochran. He was footing the trial expense himself and receiving minimal wages as a court appointee. 
this just adds to Johnny Cochran's legendary status. Indeed, I, I said, I think he worked this case pro bono for 27 years. Now, I mean, he wasn't exactly out, you know, bumming quarters and the like because of this. But I mean, somebody who could have commanded all kinds uh, of compensation for his services for more than a quarter century and yeah, doing it in the name of justice. Johnny L. Cochran Jr. Grandsester. Number two, juror Juan Santiago confirmed if more members came in and established his alibi in Oakland that would have counted and maybe turned it around. Neely Fuller discussed four wallism and its weaknesses. See page 53, United Independent Compensatory Code System Concept Revised Edition. Maybe we can get a reading of that before uh, we conclude today. All I can say, there are many disgraceful moments in this text, like many, 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 and more to come. But I mean, we join an organization. We're supposed to be, we're we're trying to help black people work against racism. That's our goal. Power to black people. We get a, not a Vietnam, but a two-tour Vietnam veteran who according to the record has saved lives putting those sandbags up and what have you saved lives and was not running around suggesting reckless activity that would have just gotten people killed and what have you like little Bobby Hutton really doing constructive things trying to help black people as his elders told him back in Louisiana he gets framed up on a charge where we know is no possible way he could have killed these white people. No possible way. He was with us. Anybody who knows California, California is massive. It takes five hours to drive efficiently from L.A. to Oakland. Five hours efficiently. That's if it's no traffic, no snags, peaceful day, no Snoop Dogg concerts, that type of thing. And I mean, the pettiness and the infighting is so bad that as opposed to we we can't even frame it as the way they would talk you know the pig the man whitey he he has one of the brothers you know he he has one of the brothers and is trying to hem him up we we gotta at least go and make sure that they don't get one of the one of our former brothers nah 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 he's a coon even though we know he didn't do this what is it he's a jackanape and a sellout and a coon so we're not going to go and, and testify. I mean, white people are most to blame, but I mean, what that right there is a whole lot of illustrations. But I mean, these are the, the kings and queens of brother and sister It's every. I mean, that's almost part of the, the 10 point program. Brother, this and brother, that and sister, this and sister, that and brother, this and brother, that and sister, this and sister, that. And then when it comes down to the come down. Oh, that brother's a no-count jackanape. Yeah, gotta let him ride. That right there, I mean, it's many examples, but I mean, do not ever, ever, ever call me brother. United, if that's all it takes is a little nudge from racist man, racist woman, and let we'll let brother Geronimo right off of the gangplank and find some excuse that he was coon of the month. Whew, black brother, black brother hell. Let's see. 
Number three, Cochran reflected on pre-trial proceedings on Richard Kalustian's flat denial that he was withholding discovery material. He thought of his old classmate's claim in final argument that glaring contradictions in eyewitness testimony were insignificant. I suspect his inexperience very much informed his approach to white colleagues in the few, oh, excuse me, I think, I suspect this experience very much informed his approach to white colleagues in the future. He almost says as much. We just keep reading in the book. He and in his own book, Journey to Justice, he almost says as much. This case had a profound uh, impact on his understanding of racism, white supremacy, the way he practiced law, the way he understood how the world works as it would, I'm sure, for anyone who was involved for 27 years. I mean, that, as he said, the case of his life. Uh, next, a glimmer of light. Number one, Cochran was still pleading with the judge when all at once she waved her hand and said the motion for a new trial is denied. She sentenced Pratt to life imprisonment and strode toward her chambers. So characteristic of a racist man, racist woman, racist child, they can casually dismiss black life with the wave of a hand and nary a thought. Well said. Number two, the outmanned guards maintained control by pitting one racial group against another. Sam Quentin ran on racism and hate, also emblematic of how racist man and racist woman manipulate non-white victims globally outside of greater confinement. Say it twice. Mm. Incidentally, I think former governor of uh, Minnesota George Floyd I think he said the exact same thing in keeping them distracted and anywho uh, 4th Street in Sacramento number one he heard a chirpy voice Geronimo Charles Manson's hairy face peeked from cell number one Pratt nodded he was glad to see a familiar face even though it was ugly and scarred with a Nazi swastika amazing Greater confinement and solitary in particularly is so damaging to the psyche that one can obtain comfort in the face of a serial killer. Profound. We are social. I mean, you can just look at this year. We're reading this book at this moment. Look at the past year. I just read an article today. Man, it said that 42% of people have gained more weight than they wanted. And out of those 42%, I think it was somewhere around like half of them or somewhere close to half of them had gained like 29 pounds or something. And then I think like 10% of those had gained 50 or more pounds just in the last year. Uh, people and so many folks talked about the mental health impact of being isolated and just all of the social things that they would normally do uh, that it has you know really uh, been destructive uh, for many many people all over the world so we are social beings and I think white people the people who construct prisons and solitary confinement they understand this Khalif Browder they understand this uh, you'll get more information about this, but this is remember when we read the half has never been told and they talked about how they would design torture techniques on the plantation uh, to break the spirit of black people or to kill them outright and to enjoy during it while they suffer in all these, you know, imaginatively cruel ways. But that's a part of this experiment uh, experience slash experiment. We get to find different ways of torturing you. And yes, one of them just 
you don't get any contact with anyone your family friends other inmates you'll be as you will be gleeful to see Charles Manson or another racist he had a few of those continuing uh, number two they were mumbling about me all those big old studs they were waiting to inherit George Jackson's legacy as the meanest prisoner in CDC it mattered to them old studs arguing over which slave is boss on the plantation the word stud is also used to describe male horses kept breeding delectable negro the homoeroticism that is exactly right I think that was the term used for black males who were sexually exploited on the plantation and forced to penetrate uh, black females um man maybe that was happening in the prison too maybe that's why they were called studs talk about embarrassing we're in prison arguing over who is going to take over as the toughest prisoner many embarrassing my what is it worthy of great pity Number three, after the white racist and the panther leader became friends, Bulldog Lad told him, quit smoking, lay off the stimulants, eat leaves, vegetables. Pratt told Lad, Aryan Brotherhood, fasting is healthy for black prisoners, helps you to think clear through to the bottom of things. The recommendations by the racist reminded me of Gus. Hmm. Plant-based eating. Let's see. Okay, we can stop right there. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. I guess any thoughts, questions folks have on the first audio segment uh, and even the exchange that we got at the end. Uh, Geronimo Pratt gets this information about, hey, these are things you can do to help yourself, avoid the masturbation, uh, avoid meat in your diet, different things that will help you to correct some of his bowel movement problems. Uh, and he said he lost 20 pounds, too, which probably that's all in together will be. Um, what do people he has to get this information from a suspect or not suspected from a white supremacist? Uh, yeah, <laughs> like what what do people make of that and and even how you yeah it's a lot to process from this week but what do people make of uh bulldog lad uh, and having to get life-saving information extracted from not a suspect but oh yeah for real for real racist soldier race soldier uh let's see folks who dialed in with a hand up uh line should be open proceed Can I be heard? I heard both of you. Uh, let's see. Let's get Henry in Chicago first. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, I suspect uh, reading this first, uh, in the first reading with the verdict, that there was a lot of jury tampering with this uh, in regards to um, when one of the jurors was forced to explain the picture on page 170 um, when the juror, uh, actually the foreman of the jury, 
was talking about uh, uh, they did everything to find him not guilty. And, you know, I was questioning myself, was like, uh, uh, wait a minute, I, I mean, you're supposed to find him guilty or not guilty depending on the evidence that you have. Uh, not not some, you know, and, and obviously he wasn't guilty. Uh, he, uh, he wasn't guilty, but, you know, the job as a jury is to be, you know, uh, as as just as possible in regards to the evidence presented. But, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of jury tampering going on here. Uh, well, then also, too, in the system, the judge, the prosecutor uh, are all getting paid by the state, um, the white supremacist uh, system state. Uh, then you even got the defendant uh, who – uh, whose law license is certified by the state. So it seems like everybody in the system <laughs> is is a part of a part of the whole uh corruption. So uh whether they whether they had evidence to find him innocent, um it probably still didn't matter. The judge even uh refused to clear de- uh, declare a mistrial when the jury couldn't make up their mind to convict him. So that right there is is, is is evidence to me of of, of tampering, um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I figured that in a mistrial, you know, that's you know when the when the jury cannot come up with a a, a verdict in a in a uh, particular time, um, yeah. So basically, the judge kind of basically uh, made the jury sweat it out until they came all with a guilty verdict. Um, San Quentin ran on racism and hate on page 177. That is, that sounds like our world today. Uh, I know it's uh, basically uh, a system of white supremacy is a prison uh, for non-white people. So uh, I can uh, I can definitely understand that. Uh, an X on the back of his jumpsuit, that was... That was really, really, uh, I mean, that was really surprising for me, but also insightful on uh, how they have labeled uh, Geronimo Pratt. I mean, they have they have made this guy into like, uh, I mean, he is, he's like uh, Hannibal Lecter on steroids here. Uh, so, I mean, they made him into this killing machine who, you know, who uh, collaborated with George Jackson <laughs> and 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 made him all kind of things. And it's just it is just absolutely crazy, uh, considering what the uh, what the author has said about him in his early days. And none of what the none of what is said about Geronimo Pratt, as far as being this dangerous mastermind, uh, dangerous criminal in the world thing. Uh, but yeah, that's. That's that's really really interesting there, um, and uh, one seventy nine they treated Cochran like a prisoner uh, because of him helping out uh, Geronimo Pratt, uh, locking up in the bathroom. Uh, from my understanding, from three o'clock to five p.m. I mean, wow, that's that is absolutely crazy. And this is Cochran isn't even a isn't even a prisoner, but 
you know, the guards, you know, found humor in it and, and said that, you know, he wanted an extended visit. So, obviously, race soldiers uh, doing their job being race soldiers. And uh, abandon all ye hope. Yeah, that's uh, Dante's Inferno. Uh, basically, it was the, uh, the uh, in that poem, it was the sign, uh, it was the signpost of the entrance to hell, which obviously reading this is definitely, definitely felt like hell when I was reading it. Um, and uh, his visit, you know, when he was talking about when he got transferred to Folsom and listening to or uh, reading his, uh, reading what's going on in Folsom, I remember in uh, Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, uh, he has a chapter on a day in Folsom. And it's interesting because I went back to uh, look at that chapter uh, of that day in Folsom because Eldridge Cleaver, you know, obviously mentioned in his book and connected to Geronimo Pratt. His day in Folsom sounds a whole lot different from Geronimo Pratt's uh, day in Folsom. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver was able to read books. He was able to get up at 7 a.m. from his bed and associate with uh, other prisoners. But, yeah, you know, obviously Geronimo Pratt, you know, was locked in the hole and was treated like, like I said, uh, a super, a super, super criminal uh, prisoner. And as far as that, uh, the last part with, uh, uh, with uh, Pratt uh, interacting with the white supremacists, um, I don't know, this author seems to be, uh, he seems to be, you know, uh, painting this thing a little, a little deceptively. I don't think. Well, just is just my perspective. I don't think Geronimo and him were friends. Uh, but you know, also to uh, and another question of, of what you uh, asked about. What do I think about it? Because you know, there's valuable information to get from white supremacists because white people have all the information. So you know. We can get information from them. I I, I see no problem with that. So, um, yeah, getting information from white people is something we should always be doing anyway. Uh, But as far as being friends with them, as the author said, I I suspect he was practicing racism when he said that. But uh, I don't know if they were friends or not. But, you know, I may be wrong. But that's all I have on my life. said the black Hannibal Lecter wow that uh, that would be pretty accurate all he needs is the the uh, the face guard the spit shield uh, thing that's all we pretty much left out and yeah the black Hannibal Lecter uh, Geronimo Pratt like wow that is a super thug Uh, retired firefighter in Florida much obliged for your patience sir Yes, sir. Greetings uh, to everyone. Uh, I guess uh, the term comrade would be off the table also, Gus. Comrade, (laughs) homies, uh, brothers, pals, anything else that (laughs) they make up. Right. Uh, Yeah, the the Black Panther Party had a uh, habit of uh, using such terminology that was kind of like distant from this part of the world. Uh, They were even selling... Uh, the red book on college campuses, primarily to the the, the white students, for a dollar, from what I was told. Uh, 
yes, uh, uh, I was also chuckling because I do, I do. You're going to come in with uh, uh, with the importance of uh, vegan vegan uh, diet, uh, uh, rightfully so. Uh, 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 when they, uh, they uh, he was getting uh, su- the suggestions about uh, what to eat. Uh, I, I would find it, especially during that time, very difficult to be able to pick that out. But then again, you know, when you, from my understanding, you know, by being in graded confinement, you do have time. You, you do have time uh, if you are having a uh, constructive attitude that uh, of, of, of thinking. It does give you time to do some thinking. You have nothing but time in a lot of cases. And, uh, uh, the the term political prisoner is what made him such a quote unquote target, as opposed to just a general overall killer or something like that, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, they uh, people like Mr. Pratt uh, was targeted from their possibility of being able to influence others. I thought it also was ironic that. Uh, and I'm not surprised, but but ironic that uh, the two actually met uh, Charles Nansen and Geronimo because, as everyone knows, they were uh, they were uh, that uh, Geronimo was was charged with the crime that 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 Charles Nansen ended up going to prison for, <laughs> and uh, I wonder if they talked about that, <laughs> you know, from from that standpoint. Uh, they were basically were even when he went into prison, greater confinement uh, from that permanent point in time. They they were just loading and pinning up things because also what that would do also, uh, as I think everybody would know that that would also uh, make him a target of danger with the with the other uh, uh, inmates. Uh, it would it would create so the, like like you said the whole idea of him having such a quote unquote Christian like uh, uh, thought process with uh, this person who uh, uh, was significant into him being put into prison. Uh, I have seen that. I have witnessed that myself of a lot of other. Uh, non-white people who have been in prison for a very long time, they didn't seem to be, you know, they, they seem to be in a, kind of almost like a, a nice-like state as far as uh, them being in prison for that long a period of time for something that they did not do. Uh, uh, I would say, though, it, it's certainly, logically speaking, couldn't be anything healthy about about uh, being in greater confinement for a couple of minutes, let alone talking about 27 years, 37 years, and it's such a it's such a uh, unusual thing that that I think it was a, just recently a 90 year old black male who was just released out of prison. Uh, he actually he actually went through his entire whatever he was sentenced for. I just can't think of his name, but maybe you've heard about it. Uh, this guy was actually 90-some-odd years old and managed to get through that period of time 
and was he he also was bold enough to say, you know what, I'm I'm not going to opt for being on parole uh, because you know I think he was saying because some of the things that he was in there for he didn't do, and he actually won that. And when he got released, he actually didn't have didn't have to do any parole or anything like that. But 90 years old, you know he he spent he spent you know probably three-fourths of his life behind bars. But, yeah, uh, pretty interesting, pretty interesting. Uh, uh, Mr. Jackson <laughs> spent his entire uh, prison life, his, the history of the Black Panther Party, he was all, he was in prison the whole time. <laughs> you know, uh, it just so happens that what he was doing in prison uh, kind of like I guess I guess enlightened the Black Panther Party to the extent that they kind of like reached out to him in some sort of way uh, to to acknowledge him basically, and that was about the 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 completeness as far as the history between Mr. Jackson and the Black Panther Party, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, I recall maybe two or three weeks back, uh, he talked about or he referenced George Jackson uh, and he called him a career criminal. Uh, and I pointed that out and said, I'm, you know, I'm greatly bothered by that. Uh, I think that's a suspected act of racism. Uh, now to bring George Jackson up again, uh, as though he and Mr. Pratt uh, were in cahoots. Uh, of some sort, as you say, he was in greater and as I as you stated, he was in greater confinement. Although he was a member of the Black Panther Party and greatly influenced the party, he was in greater confinement the whole time. They talked briefly about you know the attempt to get him out of prison and him being assassinated and all, but I mean, it's not like he was out hobnobbing uh, with anyone. Uh, he, he, you can read some right. of his uh, books and see some of the letters and exchanges that uh, he had while he was still alive very intelligent person talking about white supremacy racism but yeah the the deception in their campaign here is pretty spectacular let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open proceed hello can i be heard helen in you uh new york yes ma'am hello thank you dtr and Thank you to the listeners. Um, I'm enjoying the book club. I just bought the book a couple of days ago, and I'm already on page 343. So um, this book has had, uh, so far, a very profound uh, effect on me. And um, I wonder wonder, uh, why the author, why he named the titles of the chapters what he did. Um, I wonder if the titles have uh, a different meaning or other meaning, meanings. Like um, there's one title like The Comedians, and I wonder, like, I don't know, it just stuck out to me. I, I didn't really get the title of that. And uh, another one, uh, Glimmer of Light. And since white people are masters of words, I'm like, I wonder if it has a uh, a dual meaning or something else. And um, that's it for now. Thank you. Much obliged, Helen in New York. Uh, I, I remember, uh, it's been, I have read this book uh, before. 
uh, way before the cows even existed. And I do remember it had a profound impact. That was why we're reading it now. Uh, and we just read the OJ Simpson book, but I was like, Oh yeah, the Simpson case. That was not how I first found out about Johnny Cochran. It was through the Geronimo Pratt case. And I remember reading this book and it definitely will leave an impression. Um, just everything that he endured and what they did to, for lots of reasons. It, it leaves an impression. So I'm not surprised that you got it and have already chugged right through it. Um, well, you still have a ways to go. It's, it's not exactly a short book, so we have a ways to go too. Um, the chapter names, uh, there's generally some sort of, uh, clue as the chapters kind of go along. I would have to point things out. Like you mentioned the chapter, the comedians, I think this, the, the preceding chapter ended with an exchange with Johnny Cochran and Geronimo Pratt. And they were saying how, uh, they were talking about the judge and Calusti and the prosecuting attorneys that they were like stooges and even some of the uh, prosecution witnesses uh, that they were like stu- the three stooges. And I think uh, Cochran responded, well, that would be true, but they're not funny. And so that was how that chapter ended. And then the immediate, immediate next chapter was the comedians. And I think he made points in talking about how some of the exchanges with some of the witnesses, prosecution witnesses, specifically uh, Mr. Olson, Mr. X, uh, Detective Eckstein. I'm just picking them because they were mentioned this week, how when Cochran would ask them, so did you pick somebody else out other than Pratt at a previous lineup? And they'd be like, oh, well, uh, maybe I don't remember, but I didn't think it wasn't like it would just be like goofiness uh, in some of the responses where they'd be dancing around, giving a direct answer to questions. Seems like we hear that a lot on the cows, but that's uh, for that chapter. I think why that was called the comedians. Uh, I'd have to look at some of the like glimmer of light and some of these others as to let's see as to why. Oh, I think that's uh, the glimmer of light that he got from the prison cell that came through. I think that's what that one is, because uh, that's a really short chapter. The next one is Q, where he's transferred to San Quentin. Uh, the next one, it'll just normally be like the chapter should give some sort of little hint uh, or signification about where uh, the story is going to be going. The next one is Four Street, Sacramento. So, oh my God, now I've been moved to the super prison for super thugs. Um, so yeah, you can kind of just pay attention and the chapter should, if he Olson gives enough detail, the chapter should reveal why it's named as such. Uh, if enough info is provided, might not be the case. Uh, let's see other folks, uh, who dialed in with a hand up, uh, commentary to share. Oh, I just heard like, um, when someone was making a comment about like, um, like how the races sometimes they have constructive information and that if you if you ask questions you can you can you can get that information and get logic and then you could use the, that logic to help solve uh, problems so that's that's really what my my comment is about what I've heard from the from the reading thank you much obliged uh let's see i didn't really see any other folks uh with the hand up uh let's see Mm-mm-mm-mm. if you have a hand up star six one and we will nab you as such let's see i got a my cookbook if folks remember judith finlayson uh when she was a guest on the program uh, a couple weeks back 
I made a compensatory investment request for a book, The Vegetarian Slow Cooker, over 200 delicious recipes, and it actually uh, just came in the mail today. From I'm a little bit surprised because it generally takes things a long time to travel from uh, north of the border, but it is here. They have, uh, look at the savory cheddar cheese soup that can be made vegan, uh, and this is right, smoked tofu gumbo, uh, classic French onion soup. Ah, I'm excited. Like, there's so many different recipes. There was a sweet potato, lasagna, gingery, chickpeas, and spicy tomato. Like, whew, I am excited. Uh, and this is right on time. We just had the chapter, eat more leaves, eat more leaves, get more of those vegetables in. Whole book uh, to get more and more vegetable, more and more recipes, ways that you can prepare tasty, healthy uh, foods that will help you have Dr. Ruby Lathan. What did she talk about? Transit time. She talked exactly about what was said at the end of our first audio segment. The more fiber you get in your type a diet, uh, leaves you'll have and more water. You'll have easier, more regular bowel movements. It won't be such a strain. It shouldn't be. You shouldn't have to go in uh, and then, uh, only having a bowel movement every two days or something to that effect uh, that just is not healthy is not normal she talked about how that ends up you can end up with a lot of toxins being left in your body and that can cause a lot of other problems lots of detail about that it's in the archives but eating more veggies super important let's see other notes that I took <clears throat> for the first portion of the reading let's see so the verdict the chapter that we started with today uh, let's see I had scrolled down as I was looking at some of the chapter names so I have to scroll back up to that okay here we go the verdict uh, so they deliberate a little bit longer than they did in the OJ Simpson trial this one was a little more challenging apparently they need several bits uh, of testimony read back uh, they seem like they're deadlocked for a while at 10-2 then 11-1 then they finally uh, can pressure. I guess that's one thing we've talked about before. If you are a victim of racism and you are fortunate enough to end up on a jury, go by the evidence. Follow logic. If it's a victim of racism who is the defendant and you see enough reasonable evidence that, man, I have some questions. <laughs> I think this person reasonably, I think this person didn't do it. They might be practicing racism or they're mistaken or whatever it is, but I think this ra uh, victim of racism is reasonable evidence to conclude that this person didn't do it I'm holding out forever that's going to be my act of black self-respect and counter racism I'm holding out with till the chickens come home to roost like you're not going to badger me I know all those tricks and dirty looks and all the rest of it like hung jury so we're a hung jury so we're a hung jury <laughs> you could just stay in the question lane but hold out forever uh, if the evidence suggests that oh yeah this person didn't do it I have reasonable doubt uh, let's see uh, he doesn't even want to stay for the verdict I can totally understand uh, just at a Vietnam veteran I gotta sit here and suffer this uh, indignity uh, all the talk about the Panthers already said that uh, if any of them some of the Bobby Seal some of the higher ranking more known figures had come to testify I don't know if they have articulated uh, regret about this 
the folks that are still, well, we'll hear from Huey Newton later in the text, so stay tuned. Uh, but Bobby Seale and some of the more prominent members, David Hilliard, I don't know if they have articulated regret about this. And, you know, man, the Cointel Pro, they played us and we should have done this. And, man, that was messed up, all that infighting. Like, man, it would be all kinds of my bad. Geronimo, my bad. Four-wallism is whack. Uh, let's see. Uh, Johnny Cochran made him a better attorney, made him have a better understanding of white supremacy racism. He said he would be tougher, more skeptical, and most of all, braver in the pursuit of truth. I don't think he could have gotten the O.J. Simpson acquittal without this trial. I think this trial is necessary, vital in the development of Johnny L. Cochran Esquire um, and being the attorney probably one of the few attorneys in the world who could have successfully uh, steered that case to a victory needed this information from this trial uh, and having seen that how you can bring all these forces together to convince people that oh yeah this fella here he did it absolutely we don't have an eyewitness but oh yeah he did it let's see glimmer of light uh, so oh I think the glimmer of light here, the reason this chapter is named as such is when he gets the call from this other uh, attorney who says, wait a minute, uh, uh, Lawrence Rivets, who says, hey, uh, they have lied. Uh, Kenneth Olson identified another suspect and he was certain about it. Uh, this is the sort of information that they're talking about that should have been revealed in discovery. So this chapter, glimmer of right, light, uh, like, oh, we got a little bit of hope. This affidavit, this might help us get a new trial. There was evidence that was withheld. Uh, what did they call it? Uh, exculpable evidence that would tend to suggest Mr. Pratt was innocent of the crime that was withheld for, uh, from us or new evidence available suggested he didn't do it. We can get a new trial. Glimmer of light. Uh, let's see. The... Going through there... I suspect this is a white person. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Uh, 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 uh. I thought it was important. The caller who wrote in uh, that Cochran was still pleading his case when Judge Parker waved her hand. And eh, motion for new trial did not. Blackmail privilege. Uh, let's see. And then they add the statement. Boy, white. I've seen the same pattern. If it, it can be any black person, any situation. Maybe you did something wrong as a non-white person. Maybe you didn't. But they will. It might start out with, let's say, a speeding ticket. Let's say you were doing 60 in a 55. It'll start out with that. By the time we end up, it'll be speeding, 60 in a 55, resisting arrest, cracked windshield, dirty fingernails, truculent attitude. Like it'll be 20 different other charges that all this started from allegedly going five miles over the speed limit. Now you are super thug number one. So we've got him convicted of this crime and now it's, oh my goodness, uh, permanent file, vicious killer, never to be released. And they say the, these statements would follow like a faithful black dog through the rest of his days behind bars. White dog. Uh, let's see. Next chapter. Q. San Quentin. Uh, so fewer than 400 guards oversaw 4,000 prisoners. 
yikes if my math is accurate that's like what is that like one to ten uh, ratio if my math is accurate in terms of how many people you kind of have to control like that's like South Carolina plantation numbers uh, and they said we control it by racism we keep the black people fighting with the Aryan Brotherhood and the Mexicans and the black people fighting and probably the black people fighting amongst themselves and all the rest of it keep every and then we don't feed them from time to time and all the rest of it just keep everybody confused and scared and they don't know what's going on that's how you can have a small number of people Dr. Welsing small number of people control a large number of people uh, let's see next uh, steel door slammed and found himself alone in the light from a dim overhead bulb when his eyes adjusted he discerned four walls and a hole in the floor it was the LA County Jail all over except that the toilet was a little bigger he was nervous about his medical problem I just for 27 years in addition to uh, I have to sleep in the daytime or not sleep at all because people are trying to kill me uh, they're poisoning my food uh, I've got my own medical problems I've got shrapnel in my body from war injuries I shouldn't be here in the first place <laughs> the lengthy list of problems on my list in addition to all of that sometimes I have a toilet sometimes I don't have a toilet uh, let's see the food is awful we've heard that before I think Mr. Fuller talked about that that's in Shawshank Red, uh, Redemption remember that they had worms in the food same thing here uh, and then it's not just that the food is bad they say the trustee who delivered his food said the guards has sprinkled his mashed potatoes with a powdered medicine used to treat asthmatics how do you know that's what it is how do you know it's not anthrax strychnine like how do you know <laughs> Like, I mean and I don't have a toilet and all of this is because they say you were engaged to George Jackson's sister. Who is George Jackson? I don't even know George Jackson. Like what? And he's dead on top of that. Like what? Uh, let's see. Then they go through. He has an X. Can you imagine? You got an X on your back. You're shackled. Your feet and arms are shackled. And they tell you if you fall down, you're dead. Those are our orders. And they tell you, matter of factly, not even yelling or calling you nigger or coon, anything else. Just, we got orders. You fall, we got to shoot you. Have a nice day. Walk slow. In addition to all of that, Mr. Cochran sees this. He's got an X on his back so they can aim straight. <laughs> what have we wrought? What? <laughs> I can't even grasp, like, what is happening here? What? <sighs> continues let's see even trying to figure out what it, where is all this coming from like why am I super thug why am I you know the baddest convict in the universe they're not even treating uh, Charles Manson uh, like all this incidentally as firefighter said he was accused of those crimes at first the uh, Manson murders Mr. Pratt was uh, accused of those crimes uh, it continues so they lie and get all this I mean just the the ability to lie in a system of racism white supremacy that is such an extraordinary power I don't have to prove anything I don't have to have evidence of anything you did it 
You know, you were homies with George Jackson. You were going to help coordinate the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. You know, you were going to help kill JFK. Anything. We can just say that, you know, you were going to blow up the prison. Put it down. And that's just what it is. Like, oh, okay, he's going to kidnap JFK. So we got to put him in the super thug pen. And they do this sort of thing all the time. Next, uh, 4th Street in Sacramento. Uh, uh, He said three hours later, he was in a car that lurched onto the shoulder through the steamed up windows. He saw his first grass in three years. That should not be lost in the midst of all this. Like, in addition to being social, I don't think human beings are designed, are supposed to just be staring at like concrete walls and bars all day long. And I think racists, they love creating environments like that for non white people where there's no grass, it's no trees, it's just going to be concrete, asphalt, bars, fencing razor wire like nothing natural and scenic to inspire you and make you remind you you're in touch with nature and the barbell let's put some razor wire up there like that three years no grass no toilet either uh And they're still talking all this time later about getting rid. And they accuse him. He's founder of the black gorilla army. I said, oh, my goodness. Maybe he was in the uh, African Liberation Army. Remember that one? We were reading that about this time last year. (sighs) Worst book ever. Uh, And then the leaves. That's where we left off at. I will stop here. Uh, We should have uh, additional commentary after we finish with the second audio uh, segment. Uh, If you have comments that you didn't get to share, make a note we'll get to them after we conclude this segment last man standing context of white supremacy audio segment 2 chapter 27 a visit on a scorching day in California's Central Valley in early March 1974 a guard came to Pratt's cell and said A lady's outside says she's your mother. Geronimo's heart began to pound. What on earth was his mother doing at Folsom? He managed to sputter. Let me, uh, let me talk to a supervisor. A lieutenant confirmed that the woman had signed the register as Eunice Petty Pratt. I'm begging you, man, Geronimo said. My mother cannot see me in chains. He would kill himself first. But in one full year on 4th Street in Sacramento, he'd never been allowed out of his cell without handcuffs and shackles. It was an unbreakable rule. The supervisor returned in 20 minutes with a black sergeant. The two men unlocked the cell door and told him to hold out his hands. Shut up, fool, the sergeant said. Do what you're told. The guards applied the cuffs around his ankles, chains leading up to a belly chain, 
and handcuffs locked in front to the chain, the standard traveling uniform for the fractious residents of 4A. Pratt shuffled the length of the corridor and passed under the sun from Dante. Clanking toward the visiting room, he stopped and refused to take another step. I can't do this, he said. I'm sorry. Maybe Mama and me can talk on the intercom? The lieutenant started unlocking the shackles and cuffs. Do we have your word? I never took these off, he asked. Yes, sir, Geronimo said. You have an hour. Mother and son spoke in the security housing visiting room while two guards hovered nearby. She called him Gerard and my baby, and he called her Mama and Sweet Mama. She tried to comfort him, but he didn't want her to think he was suffering. He spent most of the hour telling her that life in the penitentiary wasn't bad and turning the conversation to other subjects. It's gonna be okay, Mama, he said. I didn't kill that woman. You know that, Mama. It's a mistake. Me and Mr. Cochran, we're going to straighten it out. Eunice Pratt said she knew the details. Don't you worry, baby. The Lord will provide. Her voice was as clear and firm as ever. She was almost seventy now, but to Geronimo she didn't look much older than the woman who'd made him finish his okra. When the hour was up, he told her, Now, Mama, I don't want you coming back to this place, okay? He tried to sound stern. I'm going to be out real soon. I'm coming home, Mama. Please, don't come back. They touched hands against the screen. God watches over you, baby. His mother said, you're his baby too. After Geronimo was returned to his cell in chains, he sat on his rack trying to remember every word his mother had said, the way she looked, everything she told him about his siblings, Mr. Jimmy Harris, the barber, his best friend, Alvin Cato Delco, Mr. Ben, the freezer owner, Morgan City's elders, teachers, and preachers, the dramatist persona of the long-running drama that unreeled in his mind day and night. The cell door rattled, and a guard handed him a package clumsily wrapped in newspaper. Sorry, he said. We had to open and inspect it. I'm not allowed books, Geronimo says. Captain says, you can have this one. The Bible was in thick red leather with embossed Greek letters and a gold cross on the front. Geronimo read his mother's handwriting on the first blank page. I am the Alpha 
and the Omega, the one who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Revelations 1 verse 8 Holy Bible Thanks, Geronimo said and quickly turned away. For days after his mother's visit, he sat and stared at his new Bible. It was so beautiful. It was like my only art object, but it was also Mama. He was in his fourth year of solitary confinement in one jail or another and was beginning to wonder if he would ever be free. He found little comfort in the words of the Bible. Never again would he be the blind believer who crawled out of bed in the dark to serve as an altar boy. But he found something talismanic about the red leather book, a reminder of his mother's love. Several days after the visit, he was sitting cross-legged on his rack when he realized that he was chanting under his breath. Later, he decided that it was Eunice Pratt reaching in to him. He'd grown up listening to her prayers and mantras, sometimes in the Cato tongue of her Caribbean ancestors, sometimes in the Latin of the High Mass, and sometimes in a mix that sounded a little like a tobacco auctioneer. Many of his fellow prisoners chanted the unlikely bulldog lad was one. At night they made for a hum and moan like a generator. Geronimo tried to train himself to chant like the others, but after a while he realized that the process worked best if he let his mind run free. I didn't even know what I was chanting. Just words, sounds, grunts, hums, little snatches of songs. Things came into my mind, new experiences, new feelings. After a few sessions, he began to feel more relaxed, cleansed, elevated. As he chanted, he saw his mother, then Bunchy Carter, his brothers and sisters, the murdered Red, old friends in the Panthers, Sergeant Maddox, and his army buddies. I'd smoked a little dope in my life, but this was the best high in the world. I talked to Malcolm X. Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, Stokely, Huey, the Cleavers. I had long discussions with Frederick Douglass and James Baldwin. I told off Richard Nixon, you sorry son of a bitch, they send you to a mansion in San Clemente and me to a cell in San Quentin. I talked to ants and roaches and they talked back. I learned how to see things from other perspectives. The ants taught me that the world doesn't rotate around Geronimo Pratt. 
Maybe a roach was the center of the universe. Maybe a fly. A mud wasp. Who knows? I thought about the collective intelligence of insects and I learned that some things would always be beyond my grasp. As the days passed, he realized that he found his daily ticket out of the hole. Chapter 28 Back to Q Bulldog Lad slipped him a work by Krishna Murti, then a pamphlet about Siddhartha. Geronimo was pleased to learn that Hindu masters recommended techniques that were similar to the ones he taught himself. Lad introduced refinements. Yoga the lotus position, astral projection, meditations, breathing exercises, and other types of mantras and chants. Remember that squat little racist said, none of this shit works if you harbor bitterness. You got to get the venom off you. Start with the guards. They're just blue collar dudes like us. Quit fighting them all the time. Geronimo pondered the advice. He'd found most of the Folsom and San Quentin guards to be as callous as the deputies who ran the Los Angeles County Jail, but in a subtly different way. The L.A. jail personnel were part of a hierarchy that included the LAPD, which Geronimo and other African Americans regarded as the most corrupt and bigoted police agency outside the Deep South. State prison personnel seemed less prejudiced against blacks, but more prejudiced against criminals in general. Both Q and Folsom were grossly understaffed and full of shadowy blind spots where prisoners could do as they pleased. The guards kept order by utilizing inmate muscle. Geronimo had seen a few murderous setups in the L.A. County Jail and had almost been killed himself at Tracy, but setups were commonplace at Folsom. One day, he was pondering the wit and wisdom of Bulldog Lad when a medical assistant arrived with his daily allotment of laxatives. Geronimo chased them with a glass of water. After a while, he fell sideways. The next thing he knew, a guard was slapping his face and yelling in his ear, Wake up, goddammit! Wake up! Pratt found out later that other inmates had produced such a clamor when he failed to respond to their calls that the guards had no choice but to check on him. For ten or fifteen minutes, he could barely speak. The medical assistant admitted that he hadn't dispensed laxatives but a double dose of Thorazine, a tranquilizer that was usually reserved for extreme disciplinary cases. Why? Geronimo asked after he revived. You give me laxatives all the time. Why'd you change? The med tech said he'd made a mistake. The pills looked alike. The next morning, Geronimo was still groggy 
when a kite arrived from Charles Manson via the breakfast cart. You've been set up. Stay out of yard today, man. It was mid-March, 1974. The heiress, Patricia Hurst, had been kidnapped a month earlier by a fanatical group that called itself the Symbionese Liberation Army. Pratt later learned that Manson had been lying awake in his cell adjacent to a guard post when he'd overheard words like nigger, set up, Pratt, and Hurst. Geronimo had heard rumors that he was a suspect but laughed them off. He decided to ignore Manson's kite. Yard time was precious, an hour at most twice a week. The small 4A yard provided a view of the sky and a chance to move a few extra feet in one direction as soon as he stepped into the sunlight an inmate shuffled from a small group in the corner and began walking the perimeter getting a little closer to Geronimo with each circuit. He recognized Humberto Flores, a hitman for the Mexican Mafia, the power group that acted as prison enforcers. Flores stopped near Geronimo and faced away from the gun deck. Listen, man. He said, I'm supposed to punch you in sight of the guards. That gives them an excuse to shoot. I'm getting a transfer out of it. Why don't you go back inside and say you're sick? Why are you telling me? Pratt asked. Blacks and Latino prisoners were mortal enemies. He didn't understand what a torpedo like Flores was doing in the yard at all. Hispanic yard time was over for the day. I heard about you, man, Flores said. You taught my cousin in county. Geronimo didn't dare leave the yard right away. Any sign of weakness could be fatal in prison society. Do what you gotta do, he told Flores. I'm not going anywhere. It would be better to die now from a 30-30 slug than a sharpened toothbrush later. Flores unleashed a muffled torrent of Spanish. Then he said, Come on, man. Por favor. Give it up. Fuck it, Pratt said. I ain't leaving. A voice came down from a gun walk. Break it up. Flores shuffled away. Footnote 29 Later, Pratt heard that Flores had been transferred to another prison for botching the setup. His punishment time was doubled. End of footnote When yard time was over, a pair of guards handcuffed Geronimo and manhandled him into a side room. He was confused by their openness. Guards seldom bloodied their own hands. His personal belongings, including his Bible and the Krishnamurti, lay on a table next to a pillow slip. Stand still, asshole, a guard said. 
you're going bye-bye. For what? For threatening our kids. What? Geronimo's mind raced as the guards shackled him and prodded him toward the sally port. He thought about the warning kite from Manson and the scene with Humberto Flores. Was there a connection? Sometimes his most surreal dreams didn't match everyday events behind these walls. He was shoved into the back of a red station wagon en route in a westerly direction he asked, What's this all about? One of the transport guards responded, All I know, man, your grave's already dug. The homecoming ceremonies at San Quentin included a welcome by a four-man wrecking crew of guards. After a thorough beating, they lifted him to his feet and one asked, kidnapped any kids lately scuzzball Geronimo thought kids he was escorted to the sixth floor north block segregation unit the old death row hole the death penalty had been ruled unconstitutional and the cells were now used for extreme disciplinary cases welcome home a guard said as the door slid shut with a clink. We'll be watching. The door was a slab of steel with a peephole. He realized that he'd been put in a quiet cell reserved for the worst of the worst. There was no bed, but he'd been sleeping on concrete for a year and preferred it. He wondered what had happened to his books. He was sitting on the floor when the door slid open and a pillow slip with his personal possessions was slung inside. At dawn he discovered a kite. He read, You're here to die, fool. That's why they call it Death Row. It wasn't signed. That afternoon, a white prisoner was strangled to death. A brother named Larry Gig Justice and I were up front getting toothpaste and other supplies when the cop on the gun rail found the body. He came running toward us with his shotgun out, pulled the trigger on me and Gig, and it misfired. Six foot range. I heard the hammer. I thought the gun might be empty, but it wasn't. He shucked out a dud round. Gig was screaming at him. Go on, motherfucker. Kill us. The goon squad put us in cat cages, the ones used for strip searches. Geronimo was in the middle of a bloody race war that showed no signs of ending. Now that he was back in San Quentin, negative evaluations were added to his central file. One report noted that he'd been placed in solitary confinement because of information concerning possible jailbreak and concluded 
subject is seen as a cold, calculating individual who is a known organizer and leader of a section of the militant Black Panther Party under the direct leadership of Huey Newton in Southern California. At present time, he claims he has broken off his affiliation with BPP, but according to information received from FBI sources, this has not been so. He was denied yard privileges, a violation of CDC regulations. He didn't protest. Until he figured out what was going on, the yard might be dangerous. The overhead light remained on. He slept with a shirt over his face. Every now and then he heard uproars from the corridor. He decided that he finally reached the hot core of California prison violence. One day he felt a thud against his door and looked out his peephole to see a white inmate stab another in the eye with a sharpened pencil. He heard later that the victim, Lacey the killer, had been put on life support but the pencil had penetrated his brain and he died. After a week of isolation, Geronimo was escorted to the hospital ward for a physical examination. While there, another prisoner warned him that his murder had been scheduled. The tip-off was the location of his cell. The death row hole consisted of some 14 cells divided into two sections. The rear section housed mostly African Americans. The front section, known as the front bar, was packed with members of the Aryan Brotherhood. Pratt's cell was square in the middle of the bigots. The friendly inmate advised him to do his sleeping by day. Two nights later, he was meditating when his electrically operated door unlocked with a click. As he jumped up, he heard a clamor from the cells in back. Black inmates yelled that two ABs were headed for his cell. By the time he staggered into the corridor to meet the threat head on, no one was in sight except a guard with a shotgun. Until his transfer from the death row hole to the adjustment center six weeks later, Pratt hardly slept. A prison psychiatrist examined him and reported that he was suffering market schizophrenia with anxiety reactions. After the inmate declined another examination, he was described as obviously paranoid, schizophrenic, and defiant, angry, and suspicious of everyone. Bit by bit, Pratt solved the mystery of the abrupt transfer from Folsom. The first clue came from a San Quentin counselor who told him that he'd been consigned to the death row hole for his part in the hijack plot. Geronimo said, Hijack? What hijack? The counselor, a recently promoted guard, sighed and said, You never heard a word about hijacking the Folsom school bus, right? Look, man, I didn't even know there was a school bus. 
I've been in the hole for three years. The counselor wondered aloud how any decent human being could threaten the lives of innocent school children, then walked out. More information seeped in from guards and staff, from fellow inmates, and from a Sacramento newspaper which gratuitously added that the hostage takers had planned to decapitate their victims. Johnny Cochran pried out the final details with a formal demand to view CDC files. The scenario had begun with an urgent tip-off to Folsom Lieutenant L.S. Wham, who reported that his information had come from an informant to the FBI who has proven reliable in the past. The informant warned that a female whose name was blacked out in the copies provided to Pratt's lawyer, was attempting to influence Mr. Randolph Hearst into providing money for an appeal bond for our inmate B-40319 Pratt. If this fails, and or any other authority refuses to comply, she, with five other people, will hijack the school bus servicing the reservation, carrying guards and employees' children as hostages for Pratt's release. They will execute one child per day unless their demands are met. States that she has already mapped details of schedule mentions 35 children specifically. FBI Special Agent Earl Knutson is in charge of the case. Lieutenant Wham noted that the threats had been made by a woman who visits Pratt regularly. As soon as Geronimo read the report, he knew who the woman was. Teresa Black, a former Panther, had visited him at San Quentin and Folsom and showered him with cards and letters. She was young, shapely, personable, and an ideal subject for midnight fantasies, but Geronimo had too many personal problems to become involved emotionally, and he told her so. She'd replied that she could wait. Apparently, she decided to hurry the process on her own. A confidential memo from an associate warden to Warden J.B. Gunn showed how seriously the prison officials had regarded the kidnap hostage scenario. The memo confirmed that the children of prison personnel were to be taken as hostages in return for the release of a Folsom inmate B-40319 Pratt. The memo described frantic meetings with city and school district officials to develop a plan of action to ensure the safety of the children. Armed officers rode the school buses with squad cars following. Travel routes were kept under surveillance even in non-school hours. After two days without incident, another Folsom administrator had reported receiving very, very reliable information that Geronimo Pratt, B-40319, would be involved in much violence within the next two weeks. Three more days had passed. 
Then the FBI reactivated the hysteria with a report that a carload of five people left Los Angeles. These people were identified as blank, 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 and an unidentified Black Panther of the Eldridge Cleaver faction. At that point, the files disclosed inmate Pratt had been rushed to San Quentin for everyone's safety. Weeks passed before the authorities learned that the kidnap hostage plot had existed entirely in the mind of a love-struck young woman. For months, Geronimo continued to pay a high price for Teresa Black's impetuosity. He was assigned a counselor whose idea of therapy seemed to be to rattle the bars on his cell and keep on walking. Guards hurled insults. Tower sharpshooters sighted on him when he was allowed in the yard. Eventually, we're going to kill all you boys, a guard told him as he was finishing his 500 sit-ups one night. I think you're nigger of the day tomorrow. Three guards dragged him into the unused gas chamber, strip-searched him, and locked him in. It was a popular disciplinary technique, and he'd been forewarned. He was expected to beg for his life, but he was freed in a few minutes when he failed to react. The next day, he was riding in the prison elevator with two guards when it stopped between floors. Tom Hagar, one of the strongest officers in the penitentiary, said, I hear you're bad. Geronimo was in a foul mood. He just had to tell one more prison medic that he would never submit to a rectal search. Take off these handcuffs, he told Hagar. I'll show you how bad I am. He slipped the guard's first punch, did a whirl around, and kicked him in the belly with the side of his foot. The other guard tried to apply a chokehold, but Geronimo proved too small a target. In army judo classes, he'd been taught to keep his chin pressed to his chest. Hagar hit him in the stomach and knocked him flat. He scrambled up and fought off the two men for two or three minutes before he was staggered again. This time, he stayed down. As they were reattaching the handcuffs, Hagar said, where are you from, Pratt? Louisiana, Geronimo gasped. Then make them tough down there. Pratt had hardly recovered from the beating when he was told he had visitors. The FBI's out there, the guard said as he unlocked the cell door. Geronimo had an idea of what his visitors wanted. The nationwide hunt for Harris Patricia Hearst and her Symbionese Liberation Army kidnappers was in full cry and the authorities were frantic. Pratt had a black revolutionary's attitude about the case. If Patricia Hearst had been a janitor's daughter from the ghetto, the cops would have listed her as a missing person, worked the case for a few days, then turned to other matters. Since she was rich, famous and white, lawmen were scrambling to find her. 
Geronimo was aware that he was suspected of complicity in the affair, even though he'd never heard of the SLA and had been in solitary confinement. He had other reasons to be wary of FBI agents. During his trial, there had been suggestions of FBI involvement ranging all the way up to J. Edgar Hoover's office. Geronimo and his lawyers suspected that Julio Butler, Cotton Smith, and several other prosecution witnesses had been programmed by the FBI. News arrived late in the Adjustment Center, but word of a nationwide campaign of FBI dirty tricks against black leaders had begun to trickle in. Take a hike, Geronimo said to the guard. Tell the FBI not to bother me again. On a chilly morning in late 1974, with the fog thick off San Francisco Bay, he just finished running his daily ten miles in tight circles in the yard when he was told to prepare for an attorney visit. He was shackled and led to a small room. Your visitors will be here in a minute, the guard said. Geronimo thought, My visitors? I wonder who Johnny bought. Maybe one of his law clerks. His staff was growing. The door opened on the other side of the metal screen and two men in dark suits appeared. One flashed a card and said, FBI. I don't talk to the FBI, Pratt said. One said, you want out of here, don't you? Geronimo called for the guard. The agent said, we know the whole story, Pratt. Tell us where your people are keeping Patty Hearst. A few days later, Johnny Cochran arrived with bad news. The state court of appeal had denied his petition for review. We're not dead yet, Geronimo, the lawyer said. Judge Parker is hearing our resentencing motion. I think she'll listen this time. Well, obviously we know uh, Judge Parker did not have too much of change of heart or it wouldn't have taken 27 years for Mr. Pratt to be released. Uh, but we will find out what happens next, uh, the next week, so the next chapter is another journey so that's pretty vague just new twists and turns uh, in all of the madness uh, let's see I'll get in our note quickly okay a visit number one Pratt shuffled the length of the corridor and passed under the sign from Dante I think the sign may state abandon all hope all ye who enter here taken from the poem Divine Comedy published in 1320 by Dante Alighieri. Back to Q. Number one, Bulldog Lad slipped him work by Krishnamurti, then a pamphlet about Siddhartha. Geronimo was pleased to learn that the Hindu masters recommended techniques similar, similar to the ones he taught himself. I suspect the meditation techniques and yoga probably contributed greatly to his ability to survive his long-term confinement with some measure of sanity. Yoga for all. Number two, Teresa Black, a former Panther and the failed plot to free Pratt. I wonder how serious this plot was. 
I could not find anything on the net discussing this. It may have just been another ploy in order to justify abusing him. I thought the same thing. Number three, the heiress Patricia Hurst kidnapping and the Symbionese Liberation Army. One of the more bizarre episodes of the 1970s, and there were many, the leader of the SLA was a black male named Donald DeFries, who assumed the title Field Marshal Sink after Joseph Sink, uh, who led a slave rebellion over the Spanish slave ship Amistad 1839. With all the Cointel Pro information and surveillance, implicating Pratt seems like another ruse to justify abusing him. Absolutely. I mean, come on. Just any old, like Kennedy assassination. Maybe even the Abraham Lincoln assassination. He probably did that too. Like anything. Much obliged, uh, our person who wrote in, Investor. Uh, other folks who dialed in, uh, if you all have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right. Um, it, I mean, it's interesting the way they're, I mean, they have this man in prison and they are still just um, finding ways to just break him down even more. I mean, <laughs> they're not satisfied with him being in prison, I guess, so. Uh, more and more, they, they're just uh, giving him negative connotations. And it's so funny and interesting because, you know, they kind of contradict each other. Like, for instance, it's like, you know, he's a, uh, on page 196, he's seen as a cold, calculating individual who's known as an organizer and leader uh, of a section of the militant Black Panther Party. But on the next page, diagnosed as a marked schizophrenia with anxiety reactions. So, I mean, is it possible to be an organized, cold, calculating leader and at the same time be a paranoid schizophrenic? I'm not a psychologist. I wish Dr. Wilson was here. Maybe she could answer that. But um, I find it to be uh, contradictory uh, in that case. Um, when he uh, when the author describes um, this uh, woman Teresa Black as young, shapely, and an ideal subject for midnight fantasies, I mean, he couldn't just say that she was just a beautiful woman. Not all of these sexual overtones. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. But obviously, you know, Jack Olson suspected races and um yeah and 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 connecting him to the to the whole patty Hearst uh uh incident like i mean i went on you know i've been trying to do google searches on it went on to the wiki media uh wikipedia page and tried to do a, a find on geronimo pratt's name and i could not find anything uh on the Wikipedia page that has Geronimo or Pratt on that page. And this is a nice long page of Patty Hearst uh, on here. Talks about her life, talks about the incident, uh, her kidnapping and everything. So this is, uh, is absolutely interesting what they have done to this guy. And 
you know, going back to uh, going back to Huey P. Newton and his time in prison. Uh, I'm assuming that his time in prison was probably this bad or maybe worse, which made him into the person he was when he, you know, was released uh, from prison. So, but uh, that's all I have on me in my life. No toilet. No toilet. Uh, important point as well about the way uh, Miss Black was described, Teresa Black, uh, Midnight Fantasies and all, that's kind of lewd uh, at minimum. Um, yeah, important point. Uh, retired firefighter, did you have commentary to share, sir? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, the uh, FLA incident was, was closer to my conscience of... Uh, uh, countering racism, white supremacy. Uh, I was a uh, teenager at the time, and I, I I recall, and I read a book. I read a book kind of like recently, within the last ten years or so, on the subject matter. And uh, uh, the by that time in in history, you know, you you had you had all kinds of strange things that was going on where this group actually had a uh, quote unquote black male who was in who was a quote unquote leader but also had white people involved and there were guns and you know I think everybody knows about the Patty Hearst how Patty Hearst got involved into it uh and uh it just re- it just reminds me that before the the move situation took place in its demise something similar happened with the SLA where the police literally just destroyed a a block of of homes and terrorized the, the entire area uh to shoot it out with this group with this group uh and uh I think it was in California if I'm not mistaken it was in California somewhere uh, also from the standpoint of uh I chuckled again when I when I heard the yoga, that <laughs> puts another that puts another check next to Gus T. Renegade uh, as far as things that would uh, be be a healthy uh, antidote to uh, uh, one's uh, attempts to uh, counter the global system of racist white supremacy, and it even works in or should try to practice it if you happen to be in greater confinement. Uh, yes. Uh, so those are some of the things that I, I observed uh, in this particular section of reading. Yes. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Lots of checks for Gusty in this week's section of the reading uh let's see see if i can nab a few of the notes that i took from the last few chapters we're almost at the halfway point pretty much next week we'll go over the halfway point of uh the text so we'll start heading closer to home in this one uh elliot roger uh his uh manifesto i think that's coming up on the book club uh as well as countdown i have to check that to make sure but the text where they were talking about the 
low fertility rates or dropping fertility rates. Uh, let's see. Uh, making sure I get the notes. Just all of the lying. I said that last time, but just uh, to just be able to lie and say anything that you want uh, about a person and everybody believes it. Doesn't have to have any evidence. Like we don't even have to stop and think like, now, wait a minute. This guy has been in prison for a while. Like how would he be involved if he's what I mean we got records like come on come on is he making phone calls does he have an iPhone stashed away somewhere like come on uh, his mom coming uh, to visit now we heard about this all the way through like 2021 uh, where black people non-white people in greater confinement their family members are terrorized and harassed and strip searched and all the rest of it so uh, I can totally understand uh, Geronimo Pratt for many reasons, not wanting his mother uh, to see him in this sort of condition and have to worry about her worrying about him and then what they're going to do to her and all the, I mean, we heard the first audio segment where uh, they detained Johnny Cochran, wouldn't even let him get out to go to the bathroom. So yeah, it's just horrible uh, all the way around. Um, the Bible uh, situation, just uh it reminded me so much of Shawshank uh, Redemption where they will allow you to have the Bible like I think they had the scene where he goes to the cell uh, and Andy Dufresne and, and he says well you've got this contraband you got this photo of half nude white woman and all the rest of it but we'll let it slide oh yes make sure you keep your Bible and all the rest of it like the religion of white supremacy and accompanying uh, accoutrement uh, we will allow you to keep that uh, in greater confinement, but no other book. Not in fact, you're not even supposed to have books, but we'll let you have a Bible. I and him saying that he appreciated the Bible so much because it reminded him of his mom. I, it really, it reminded me the same thing we said the first audio segment where you're isolated. You don't have contact with anyone. The only time you see people, they want to beat and kill you. Um, anything that kind of reminds you of oh, there are people that care about me. Oh, yes. And, you know, people that I care about and any sort of connection to that, the Bible being one just takes on so much value. Um, so, yeah, beyond, you know, whatever about white Jesus. Um, let's see. The chanting and all, I am not surprised about at all uh, again anything just to get some sort of connection and balance uh, and sense of life and connection to other people uh, all that about the center of the universe it might be true it may be a mud wasp but if I am in greater confinement like psh, I'm not interested in all of that like let's just get back to working on my case so that we can get out of here then we can think about the mud wasp and the center of the universe and all the rest of that um, and again those type of mental uh, gymnastics might be necessary to keep your sanity when you don't have a toilet and you're being poisoned and beaten daily uh, next back to Q yoga I would be probably trying to see if I could do some yoga to get some breathing exercises in like did all that stuff uh, at the yoga retreats thus far the, I love breathing exercises I did some today when I concluded my practice <clears throat> probably do some tomorrow when we do yoga in the morning with Dr. Ruby uh, I th just th talk about 
the snowflake calling the milk white after he gets all this information from bulldog lad he says remember the squat little racist said none of this shit works if you harbor bitterness aren't you in the Aryan brother anywho namaste uh Incidentally, I do not agree that these are just blue collar individuals. Uh, these are the Mark Furman's. A lot of these folks, they sign, a lot of these white people, they sign up for this type of work. Uh, there's been evidence. Uh, a person like Mark Furman, literally, uh, where they have more experience and they enjoy that type of job. They can go out and be boss, push people around, use their gun, use force. They can fight people, use physical force and violence particularly against non-white people. So no, these are not just non-blue-collar uh, so-called workers. They could go get a different type uh, of job if they you know, were just down and out, tough, struggling white people. Certainly wouldn't have to be a police officer. Next. Uh, so first they, they put... Uh, medication that's allegedly for someone suffering from asthma this time around they're giving him laxatives because they give him all this bad food no no leaves plant based foods so he's got all these digestive issues and so this time as opposed to laxatives they give him thorazine tranquilizer and the excuse they give is the med tech said he made a mistake pills look alike now I'm of the opinion system of white supremacy uh, no benefit of the doubt and especially in this situation with all this like nah there are no mistakes no benefit of the doubt this was like just another effort to kill him and I mean just imagine that where you have no control over anything like the food that I'm given if I get any at all they said four slices of bread and a cap of water and then that's poisoned regularly I can't even I'm speechless I'm flummoxed uh, let's see and then talk about speechless so in the midst of this environment Charles Manson comes to you and says hey bro I'm here to help now that alone would be enough for my brain to explode talk about brain computer like what I got to sleep in the daytime. If I sleep at all, they're, you know, coming in my cell, trying to kill me. Every crime that happens in the universe, they accuse me of doing it. And now Charles flipping Manson is coming to my cell and Hey bro, I'm here to help. Under any normal circumstances, I would run. Now I'm here. And this is the only person that I get to see <laughs> like in in weeks. So I got to be happy that he's here. And now I got to evaluate the information that he's providing. Is this accurate? Talk about going crazy. And so he disregards it. And then it turns out Charles Manson may have been accurate. Said he overheard nigger and Pat Hurst and all the rest of it like... <sighs> Charles Manson is here to help me. 
and I got ex. <laughs> what kind of environment am I in? Dante's hell, like my gosh. Uh, and so then they go out. You got Mexican mafia hit men. They said that the guards don't want to get their hands dirty, so they get set up the black against the uh, non-white people as though this Mexican mafia is in charge. And so Mr. Flores says, yeah, man, you know, get out of here. He tries to help him out. Like you helped out my cousin. I guess that's one, any, any environment that you find yourself in, try to be constructive. If you can get a reputation for being constructive and helpful, like you never know how that may aid you later on down the road. Uh, so Mr. Flores says, yeah, you know, you taught my cousin in county and, you know, I don't want to do this to you. Like, on and get out of here. And so Pratt is like, man, I got a <laughs> this whole wacky prison culture. Like, I got to save face, whatever that means. So I can't be no punk uh, and, you know, can't be looking like I'm scurrying away. Uh, and so then the guards say, oh, man, he's not going to die. And then they go get their hands dirty and beat them all up and punish everybody. That's who's in charge. That's why. You don't squabble. Dr. Welsing added that to the 10 stops. Black, brown, red, yellow people don't squabble and argue with each other. You recognize who's in charge. It's not the Mexican, Mexican mafia or so-called Asians. Individuals classified as white. They come break up the fight, punish everybody. Let's see. They get him his Bible back. And then it, now it's threatening the children that he's going to do this. I totally think this whole Teresa uh, Black thing is a setup uh, that she uh, was just some sort of plant or what have you, maybe used consciously, maybe unconsciously, uh, that she goes to visit him and Chavez him. Oh, I love you, Geronimo. And it's a shame and blah, blah, blah. And all the rest of it. And again, like, hey, you think, OK, it's a black female. She's, you know, down for the cause, whatever. And they're just setting this whole thing up so they can say, oh, yeah, he's implicated in this. He's trying to, you know, kidnap and kill your children and all the rest so they can excuse more uh, more of this terroristic behavior. And I think the FBI, they would have had it in their interest. Have him be killed in greater confinement like that is the best of all possibilities that reduces the chance of our criminal behavior with all of this being exposed we think this guy is dangerous anyway. We don't want him, you know, out here sharing constructive information. So we get rid of him. And then if we can do it in prison, we can blame some other black people or non-white people say, you know, the Mexicans, did it. Ah, that, you know, continue the whole race war. Like Hugh, they're trying, you know, they send it all the time. We're putting you in positions deliberately so that you will be killed and it will be easily justified. Uh, let's see. And then people are being killed uh, all around you uh, day and night uh, where he talks about, let's see. Yeah, this Lacey, the killer, they shove a pencil through his eye like what? <laughs> this is happening while you're trying to do yoga and just make sure that you're not being killed. Uh, and they put his cell in the middle of the so-called bigots, that word again, uh, not with the brothers uh, for whatever that's worth. Um yeah, and then you got all these FBI leaks about, you know, he's involved in this conspiracy and that conspiracy. And this is super thug, you know, uh, that we got to uh, have uh, chained up. Like I said, we got to get Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter. That's who we got here. We got to have him shackled everything, guard his teeth even. Uh, let's see. Anything else?
dirty tricks. Now, see, I think we talked last week about not being informed. It says that FBI news arrived late in the adjustment center, but word of a nationwide campaign of FBI dirty tricks against black leaders had begun to trickle in. Just everything about that sentence tells you who is more confused about racism. Dirty tricks? That's not what we're talking about. That's, you know, it's like uh, you're fooling a seven-year-old by making a quarter disappear. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about criminal activity that resulted in black people being killed, uh, non-white people being uh, wrongly convicted of crimes. It wasn't just leaders. It was just any old black person. If you were a black person and you showed up at a Black Panther meeting, you didn't have to be a member. You could be under surveillance. You could be a black person. You just showed up at an NAACP meeting. You're under surveillance. Maybe you lose your job. It was all kinds of what they call dirty tricks. And he says it. this information was late to arrive and it trickled in. All of that language that they don't really understand the scope of this at all. <laughs> like just little tidbits that, hey, something might have been, you know, awry or maybe they were doing something. They don't know. Uh, let's see. Yeah, and that's what we'll stop at for this week. Um, we'll pick up next week. We're at another journey, chapter 29. Uh, incidentally, I mean, this is in some ways similar O.J. Simpson, where it's very easy to convince people that, oh, yeah, this black person did it. Absolutely. Like he, he killed this white woman and tried to kill her husband and robbed them. And O.J. killed these two white people like it is so super easy. And then they can just pile on like, you know, you did this crime and 50 other crimes and this and this and this and this and this. And, this and I mean, <laughs> stop and use I guess that would be the thing above all stop and use logic when they get to accusing black people of having committed all these crimes pause use logic particularly if this is a black person who does any talking about racism white supremacy or might be any other reasons uh, that there might be a special interest in neutralizing this black person have a lot of questions use logic look for lots of untainted evidence. We did our three for this week. Uh, we should be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, we'll also be here Saturday for the compensatory call in, uh, and then we'll be here early next week. Uh, Chip Jones, uh, he's the white author of The Organ Thieves, a uh, book about how the first heart transplant, they stole the heart from a black male, black misandry. Uh, we'll talk about that. That'll be next week. Very similar. We talked about that whole chapter in uh, Medical Apartheid, Harriet A. Washington. Anywho, she wrote a review of Mr. Jones' book. Anywho, much obliged to all the folks who participated. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday afternoon. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need our brain computer to solve these problems. Uh, in addition to being sober, let's be buckled every time we're in a vehicle. Uh, if you have to go out, uh, be very alert and mindful. I think uh, there was even another shooting like today. They had some incident in Baltimore pretty recently. And I think there was even a shooting today where sir, there were more casualties. So just be uh, mindful. Yeah, in Texas. So just be mindful. Uh, if you go out, um, no time to be escalating 
uh, feuds with strangers, even verbal altercations. You should really be thinking like, wow, this person could be armed. Uh, they can have a group with them. They could be armed. You did not leave the house intending for armed conflict. So be very alert uh, when you exit uh, with all of that. You're sober. You're buckled. If you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Again, we need all of our attention. And then we're trying to avoid con contact with the Mark Furman's of the known universe. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Mm -hmm. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>